Happy, uh, happy Sunday. So excited to be here with you guys. Uh, before we jump into the Word, I got two awesome announcements as well. Uh, first, I just want to uh, shout out Julia and Alec. They got engaged over the weekend. They didn't know I was doing this, but I love them so much. Uh, and it's worth celebrating these, these two individuals that love Jesus and love each other and are just great uh, members and volunteers in our church. So shout out to you guys. Uh, and as Jamie said, uh, we are moving uh, to one service next Sunday. And so that's super exciting. Um, we have been really prayerful um, and cautious and just auditing our church and taking into consideration uh, what COVID looks like in our community. Uh, what, what does COVID look like in, in, in this church? And, and so we moved forward and said uh, that we believe it is a safe time to move to one service. And also we are lifting the mask uh, guidelines. So we will make masks up optional. Uh, so that means that uh, mass will be completely optional. Um, and so uh, I want to encourage you that, that everything that we've been doing has been uh, just with great uh, uh, prayer and as we seek professional wisdom and also kind of being in step with what the CD says and what federal guidelines are. So uh, that's kind of the, the movement that we've been having. So uh, when we were having, uh, when they said don't meet, we, we didn't meet. Then we went to outdoor services and we wore masks outside. And now they're saying that it is safe to take the mask down. Um, and so we want to be in step with that. And we believe that as we look at our community, as we look at San Marcos, COVID rates are down. And as we audit our individual community, we believe that it will be very safe uh, and, 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 and a good time uh, to gather uh, in one service and making masks optional. Now, if you choose to wear a mask, uh, we will completely respect that, but we're not going to police and monitor and tell you not to wear one or to put one on. So what does this mean for Kids Church? Uh, the same thing goes for the kids in the kids' rooms. Masks will be optional for them too. Uh, for the time being, we will continue to ask the kids, volunteers, the workers, to wear masks in the rooms um, out of an abundance of caution just because the rooms are, are, are a little bit smaller. Uh, but uh, starting next Sunday, as we move into one service, we will be mass optional. And so I want to thank you guys from the very beginning uh, for just being on board and giving us your trust. Uh, this is a completely new world to the elders and I, and as we're navigating what ministry looks like and what life in ministry looks like as a community, uh, I want to thank you uh, for, for choosing to trust us, for choosing to come alongside of us uh, as we put and set forth guidelines that maybe don't meet all of your preferences, but at an abundance of caution and love, uh, we have moved forward. And, and if it seems like we've been moving slow, Thank you for continuing to move at our pace. So uh, starting next Sunday, we will be having one service and mass will be optional. So uh, let's jump into the word. Uh, I, I love doing this. We're just going to go straight into the word of God. Uh, this morning, we find ourselves in James chapter one, James chapter one. And last week, we kicked off a brand new sermon series that we'll kind of be traversing for the rest of the summer called A Faith That Works. Uh, now, one of the, the big ideas that James tries to introduce us is, is that faith is, is more than just kind of this mental ascent. Rather, when you truly grasp faith, it moves you to action. Uh, that to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, is much more than saying that you believe in Jesus, but it's living like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. Um, and, and, and James is writing to a community of people, encouraging them uh, about specific things, maybe a, a culture of worldliness that has seeped into their community and reminding them uh, that, that your faith is, is more than just saying words, but it's actually doing the work. And, and now more than ever, it seems like there's this incredible disconnect between uh, Christians who believe in the word and then Christians who practice the word. 
Uh, and in fact, it's one of the reasons why so many people, young people specifically, are leaving the church because they're seeing uh, people who claim faith in Jesus, yet when they look out into their lives or into the world, it seems like that faith isn't touching anything else except their words. And so as a community of faith, we want to be a people that, that practices the faith. We want to be a people that says, not only do we believe in Jesus, not only do we love Jesus, but we're going to live like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And so as we're going through this book, James has specific challenges to us about what that faith and action looks like. Uh, so this morning, we're going to read James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And I want to invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. James chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. It says this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, the title of this sermon is Faith and Riches. Faith and Riches. I want to invite you to pray with me. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for bringing us to this Pentecost Sunday. Uh, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you gave the church 40 days after the resurrection. And Lord, I ask that, that this morning that you would fill us afresh with your power and presence, your spirit. And would it awaken us? Would it renew us? Would it remove all the distractions and the worries that we may have walked in here with? And would you embolden us to practice the word, to live it out? Uh, Would you bring about conviction of sin where we need repentance? And uh, in the midst of all that, would you just reveal to us your kindness and your love as we look into the word? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So before we kind of break this text down, I, I want to I talk about one specific point, and it's this. The way of Jesus creates a countercultural community. The way of Jesus creates a countercultural community. And it's important that, that we understand this before uh, we break down this text because we, we need to lay down this foundation and, and understand that the way that Jesus has called us to live is completely countercultural to the way the world is living. And, and the reason why is because the kingdom of God is countercultural. The kingdom of God is, is nothing like the kingdom of this world. Why? Because this world is infected and marred and tainted by sin. And so there is this, there's this world, this culture that opposes God in, in lifestyle, in thoughts, and in actions. Now, this isn't new. This is, this is pretty obvious. You, you look into the everyday stuff of life, and it's really easy to look at the way that relationships work or the way that people interact with one another or the stuff that kids get into or the stuff that adults are giving themselves over to. And it's very easy to see that the world is not like the kingdom of God. And what Jesus does is that when he comes and and he walks amongst us, Jesus carries this culture of heaven. Why? Because Jesus is embodying the culture of heaven. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so because Jesus isn't born into sin the way you and I are born into sin, Jesus carries this culture of heaven that is unlike anything this world has to offer. And and this is the culture that Jesus is bringing us back to. And, And this is the culture that we are designed to embody. 
a culture of heaven that is that stands against the dark oppressive forces of this day and age a culture uh, of love and self-renunciation a culture of gratitude and generosity and humility among other things and the way of jesus is a countercultural way of living If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be in love with Jesus, if you're going to do what Jesus did, it's going to rub up against what this culture says uh, and defines what life is. Uh, Consider these examples from the life of Christ. Uh, Consider how Jesus dealt with the religious elite. Uh, In this day and time, there was a, a, a group in power that said, this is how you should live. Here is the law you should keep, and here is how you should keep it. Uh, so uh, here is how you should, here's the Sabbath, and here's how we want you to practice it. Uh, don't just do any work. We don't want to see you shopping, cooking, baking, lifting up the light switch. They really elevated the law, and that was the cultural norm. And Jesus takes it one step further. Uh, Jesus says that it's not, just, uh, it's not just committing adultery. I tell you that even if you look at a person lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And Jesus takes it one step further, so countercultural to how people were defining living should look like. Uh, consider how he dealt with self-righteous people. Jesus says, I, I've come not for those that are healthy, but I've come for the sick. And it seems like the people that we want to identify with the most, that we want to be with, that we want to be associated with, that we want to hang out with, are people that are healthy, people that bring good vibes. People that just really elevate the energy in you. And Jesus says, I I haven't come for the healthier people that look like me or think like me or share my preferences. I come for those who are sick because those that are dead need to be made alive. Consider how Jesus was redefining family. Uh, Jesus went beyond the nuclear family. He said, just because you're my, my mom, my dad, my brother and sister doesn't mean you're in my family. But those who do the will of my father are a part of my family. And Paul would say that those who have placed faith in Jesus have been adopted into his kingdom, that now we have this heavenly father and we're a part of the family of God. And it has nothing to do with works or status. It has nothing to do with ethnicity or what you bring to the table, but solely God's love for you poured out on the cross, bringing you back into his kingdom. And consider how we define family. Consider the people that we want to let into our lives. Uh, people who, who can add or elevate our experience in life. People who, who share ideologies or preferences or way of thinking or just uh, maybe blood family. And Jesus says that, no, you're a part of this bigger family in God. And, and by faith, we're connected to one another. And this family is unlike anything else because this family will help you grow in godliness. Because as you see your brother and sister expose anger inside of you, you realize that there's something in you that needs to be submitted to my lordship. Right. And yet we run away from the people that expose the sin inside of us. And we say things like, yeah, they're just, they're just not for me. This isn't, uh, they're, they're, that, that's toxic. Consider the way that, that, that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Jesus has blessed those who persecute you, love those who persecute you, pour out your life in service to them, and, and consider how we treat our enemies. We block them. We unfriend them. We remove them from our lives um, in, in the spirit of just preserving ourselves. And, and, and understand, get me, that, that sometimes that's called for. Uh, sometimes that's absolutely 
necessary. But Jesus calls us to this higher form of blessing those that persecute us that moves us to pray for them, to, to, to seek God for them, to say, Lord, whatever they're giving them, their, themselves over to that is producing this hate or tension or this division, would you remove that from them so that they could experience your love? Jesus calls us to bless them in that capacity. But what do we do? We gossip. We speak ill. We remove them from our lives. Consider how countercultural the way of Jesus is. And it's ultimately rooted in this life of self-renunciation, self-denial. This idea that, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ comes before me in my thoughts, in my actions, in my heart, in my words. And that everything I do is in consideration of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. It's not being the Lord of my own life, not calling the shots for myself, not being in control, not managing how I think I should live and how I should go about life, but seeking God's will and doing everything in step with the Spirit and letting the Lord lead us. And he calls us to a life of self-renunciation because what we often want to do is take the seat, take the driver's seat, sit on the throne of our own heart and, and, and call the shots and make the decisions. And sometimes that comes up against or opposes God's will for our life. And think about how that's culturally rejected. The idea is, well, like, do what you're feeling. Uh, Do what makes you happy. Uh, Do what ultimately you think is best for you. But when Jesus calls us to a life of self-renunciation or self-denial, it is so much better than that because God ultimately knows what's best for you. God ultimately knows uh, how you should live and, and what he has planned for you. And the way that he orders your life is in such a way that you can experience maximum goodness in a relationship with him. Amen. And yet the idea is, is that we would rather uh, lead our lives and, and be in control and call the shots. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Tellus Fuller, he, he, he pastors in, uh, in, in D.C. Uh, I love, he said this, he said, uh, We love being found in Christ, but we don't love being formed in Christ. Think about that. We love saying we love Jesus, and we love saying that that we worship God, and we love saying that that God is my everything. But when it comes to God stepping into the everyday stuff of life, we don't like it so much when he tells us what to do or how to live or how to think. And, and, and the way of Jesus is more than just being in love with Jesus. It's being formed by Jesus and practicing this moment by moment, second by second, obedience unto him. And when we give ourselves over to the culture of heaven, we begin to see heaven invade not only our own lives, but the lives around us. You see, this is a much better way to live because when you live with you on the, 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 with you on the throne of your heart and driving the, the, the car of your life, what ends up happening is that you create a life of destruction and division and turmoil and brokenness. But when we live in submission to the Lordship of Christ and we submit ourselves to his countercultural kingdom of heaven, what eventually begins to happen is that we see the effects of sin reversed in our lives because we begin to see faith and grace and love occupy our relationships, redefine the way we think about work, uh, redefine the way we think about those that persecute us and hate us. Redefine uh, the things that we think are our uh, uh, greatest needs as we begin to look life through the kingdom of heaven and the culture of Jesus. You see, God isn't being restrictive or limiting you when he says, this is my culture, this is my kingdom, and this is how I want you to live because uh, I want control over you. 
Rather, when God looks down from heaven onto earth, he sees a people that are so disconnected from life because of sin that he comes and empowers us uh, to uh, live like him because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and because of our relationship with Jesus. And in that place, we fully come alive. And you see, one of the most dangerous places that we can find ourselves in is being lukewarm. And the reason why this is so dangerous is because being lukewarm is, is claiming the identity of Jesus, but working for the enemy. Because you're either all in or you're not. And the culture of heaven requires a decision to say, I'm all in for Jesus, therefore I'm turning away from what this world has to offer, it's telling me how to live, and I'm saying yes to him. And being lukewarm is so dangerous because you can say the right things and you can be identified with Christ but have a completely different culture inside of your heart. And it's that culture that breeds all sorts of destruction and division. It's a wildfire. And Jesus, Jesus is calling us away from that. And this is the the main, I say all this to say because this is the main concern that James has with his early church. As James is looking out into the world and seeing the afflictions that his church is experiencing, he's noticing something. He's noticing that the culture of the world is getting into his church. He's noticing that 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 this community of faith that was once founded on this uh, radical love, self self renunciation, self denial faith is is now shifting. And what James isn't talking about is, is music selection. He's not talking about the songs that they're singing or, or, or the genre of music they're playing. And he's not talking about fashion choices or how relevant is too relevant. He's not talking about mega mall, high entertainment church. This was not James' concern. Why? Because this wasn't happening and it entirely misses the point. Because you can resolve those things and completely miss why the gathered church exists. You see, this is the worldliness that James was talking about and that he begins to address in this book. He calls out this obvious preference for the rich. He's saying, I'm seeing you guys, and and it seems like you begin to favor the rich and take sides with them because you think that they can bring some sort of value to your life. And he's calling out this callous indifference to the poor. and, And the poor being the humbled and the afflicted, those that are suffering. You see your brother, they're suffering. You see your sister, they're hurt. And yet you're removing yourself from their lives because it's inconvenient, because it costs you something, and you're you're showing preference to the rich. Uh, This idea that the rich were being uh, treated better and more favorably uh, than treating these two humans with equal dignity. He's looking into his church, and and he's calling out uncontrolled and critical speech. Gossip. In chapter 3, he, he likens the, the human tongue like a fire. Uh, the, and, and you know what we know about fire is that fire can be very refining. It can mold gold and help strengthen steel. But it also can be destructive. And he's saying, you're using this fire to light people on fire, and not for good, but you're burning them, hurting them leaving third-degree burns over their reputation and over their life because you're giving yourself over to gossip and destructive speech. Another thing that James mentioned in in James 3, 13 through 14 is earthly, non-spiritual, and demonic wisdom. That's what he calls it. That that you're taking advice from the world and you're letting people tell you how to live. And and, and you know the scriptures and you know the word. Jesus has called you to to live above that or or better than that. And yet, instead of submitting your life to the word of God, you're submitting your life to the wisdom of the world. 
In James chapter 4, he calls out arrogance. He's saying, you think you got this all figured out. Uh, you, you think that, 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 that tomorrow is promised, and there you go, boasting about it is what he says. And he says, have you forgot that, that, that you are not the God of this world, that God controls every single breath in you, uh, that, that God is the author of your life? And by boasting about being arrogant about the future, you're distracting yourself from seeing the Lord because you're the one that's writing the narrative for your future. Saying, get your eyes back on Jesus. And the most important thing and, 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 and the root of all things that James calls out in the very beginning is the failure to put faith into practice. The failure to put faith into practice. Saying you know the word. You know how Jesus called us to live. And yet you refuse it to put it into practice. And as a result of not putting it into practice, you're drifting further and further away from the identity that God has given you. In Christ Jesus. Now, why is James so big on this? Uh, well, I think James is really big on this because of his, his proximity and his relationship to Jesus. If you have an experience with the resurrected Christ, there's going to be this uh, incredible fear of God that rises in your heart that moves you to holiness. Because you'll take your faith seriously. But I think one of the, reason, uh, one of the reasons why James is so big on this is because he knows that the greatest commandment that Jesus taught is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says that, that the whole law can be summarized in this. Loving God vertically and then loving others as yourself horizontally. And, and what James is saying is that when you treat people uh, unjustly, you're, you're violating that commandment. Uh, that when you speak I- evil of others, you're violating this commandment. Um, when, when, when you give yourself to love other things like worldly wisdom and riches and treasures and possessions, you're violating this commandment. And what James is doing is, is that he's calling us to repent because Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, that, that we are to live as citizens, not of this world, but of the kingdom of God. And that citizenship should come out of us so that when we live and so how we live and how we act and how we talk reflects the kingdom of God that we're from, reflects the family we're from, reflects the father that parents us. And that's what James is calling us to. And so when we get to James chapter 1, 9 through 10, with, with this in mind, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And so uh, when we look at this text, we see two groups of people, uh, the rich and the lowly. And I I love the way uh, that the ESV has defined this, the lowly. Other translations say the poor, uh, but the poor sometimes can miss the point because we're not necessarily talking about being financially destitute. Rather, the idea of the poor in the Old Testament, uh, as we see, is this idea of, of one who has been humbled by their afflictions, by their suffering. And so we see the rich and the lowly. So let's talk about the ritual real quick. The Old Testament describes the rich as those with power. So it's not necessarily always referencing like who has the most money, but the idea is who has the most power. Because power is a commodity, and when it's not used in submission to God, you will use it for yourself to get whatever you want out of this life. And so the rich is, are, are those who have power, and those who have power often had more money. Uh, and, and so certain scriptures came to be associated with, with rich people and wickedness while assuming that the poor was righteous. Now, is being rich bad? Is having loads of money bad? No. 
The point is that misusing your resources to exert power over others or to indulge in your sinful desires is. If God has given you resources, if God has given you financial gain, if God has given you great treasures and possessions, those things can be sinful when you use those things to leverage life, to get whatever you want out of life, rather than using those things to make much of Jesus and to be about Jesus' cause, to love God most and to love others as yourself. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says that whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Now, for a moment, I want you to I want to take your mind off of just like how much money is in your bank account or, or your retirement account because it can be easy to just like remove yourself from this, like thinking like I'm not that rich or I'm not rich as so and so. But but throughout it is it's like every person in this room has been greatly blessed by God. Um, uh, and uh, if you think you haven't, then give me your stimulus check. I'll take it. Uh, every person in this room at some point this year has, has received some sort of gain or, or has some sort of resource or have some sort of provision, regardless of, of what that number is. But, but the idea is more than that. Uh, the idea of trusting in your riches is, is trusting in those things that you have uh, placed great value on, and it's beyond money. It can be placing just an incredible amount of value on your identity or how hard you've worked for people to perceive you. Uh, it, can be, uh, it, it, it can be your hobbies. Like, uh, I, I, I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu crossfit, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, random book-loving reviewer, whatever your hobby is, placing all of your value and identity in that. It could be in your relationship. Uh, like I feel like I have a, a, an elevated sense of identity because of the person that I'm married to or the person that I'm dating or the kids that I have. It, it, it's about taking into consideration those things that you, that you prize, that you give your attention to, that you greatly value. And, and value is determined by, by time in this sense. Like what are, you, what are you spending the most time on? Where is your time going? Um, what does your internet search history say about what you value? What are the things that you're constantly researching and the YouTube reviews that you're constantly watching? What does your Instagram say about what you value? What does your bank account say about what you value? What does your calendar say about what you value? Because where your time goes, that, 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 that's where your, your money goes or your heart goes, and that, those things reveal like what you treasure in your life. And Proverbs say that, that, that when you place supreme value and weight on those things, you will fall. And the reason why is because whatever that is for you, it's not designed to sustain you. Like this relationship that you're placing all of your heart into is not designed to sustain you. It's not designed to carry you. Um, you know, getting to this next level in, 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 in your career or placing all of your money and attention into your wardrobe or into your car or into whatever fascinates you isn't going to sustain you because by design, they, they weren't designed to do that. And so you will fall when you trust in your riches, when you rely on those things. But then he says, the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. I love this imagery. Uh, the, the, the righteous means that those who are, are, are found uh, in Christ, those who have right standing with God, those who have relationship with God, and it says you'll flourish like a green leaf. Now, if you think about it, uh, you have very little to do with how like a plant grows or how green a leaf flourishes, whatever that looks like. The idea here is that you're positioned in God. 
and, and that God gives and that God takes away and that God sustains your growth, uh, that God carries you, uh, that, that you are rooted in him, as the scripture says, like a, like a tree planted by the water, uh, that when the sun and the heat comes, it shall not wither, and in good season, it will be abundant with fruit. That's the idea that happens here when we place our faith, when we rely on Jesus and not our resources. We will experience a life of flourishing. But James says um, in, in, in verse 10 that, that the rich will fall, that the rich will um, wither those who are placing dependence and trust on reliance on anything or anyone else except God. Proverbs 28.6, better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man who is crooked in all of his ways. James' warning for the rich is, is this temptation to cling to money or to cling to resources or to cling to anything or anyone else for trust while you're suffering, while you're experiencing a trouble, while you are in a trial. And then, and then we get to the lowly, and, and some translations use poor, but as we mentioned earlier, uh, we're talking less about being financially impoverished and, and more about uh, this common case of humility, oppression, and affliction. Uh, the, the, the people of the Old Testament were poor and lowly. They were destitute, afflicted, oppressed by the enemy enslaved to Egypt. Uh, This is the way the Old Testament describes the humble and afflicted saints who trusted in God for deliverance. And the idea in the Old Testament is is to be poor, is to be powerless. Uh, That that, that you are without resource to to have any sort of power or control over your life. Uh, That your life is not subjected to those who have power Um, And they begin to oppress and afflict the way that we see the Israelites in bondage time and time again. It's the handicapped and the imprisoned, those who are unable to sufficiently provide for themselves. And what we see happen is that God repeatedly defends the poor, the afflicted, and the powerless. Uh, Douglas Moo says that in, in the midst of such afflictions, the Christian, whose position is in worldly terms, is low indeed is to boast in his exaltation. Boast means in this context, not the arrogant boasting of the self-important, but the joyous prize possessed by the person who values what God values. So when we read this scripture and when we look at this, I want to remind you that all of this is with verse 2 in background. Verse 2 being, counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is in the background. Very real immediate afflictions, trials and troubles and suffering. And so this is about suffering. This is about troubles. This is about afflictions. Those moments in your life that move you to so much distress and pain. The conflicts in your marriage that drive you to anger. The the diagnosis that the doctor gives you that really puts life into perspective. The feeling of loss when you pour out your heart and your soul and you come out empty. In a relationship, in a career, in a friendship. When you feel like God has taken away more than he's given. Trials, troubles, and afflictions. The range of emotions that you experience when you feel like it's you versus your kids and you just want to call it quits. The problem at work. 
the issue with your boss, the fact that every month the bills are still due and life is not slowing down for your pain. Troubles, afflictions, suffering. And the people in this book, they knew that life. And James knew that the ultimate temptation when you're experiencing this sort of pain, this sort of hurt, this sort of suffering, the ultimate temptation that you will experience is not to rely on God when you're hurting, but to rely on resources. Why? Because these people, they were poor and powerless, and, 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 and it seemed like accessing or relying on your resources was just an easier thing to do than to come to God in trust and faith. Like it's so much easier to Google how to navigate this problem. It's so much easier to put your money to work to help take away and alleviate the pain you're experiencing. Whether it's just like this one meal you want to eat or just a getaway weekend to get away. And yet that pain is still there. Those afflictions are still there. And what James is calling the poor, those who are humble, those who are afflicted, he's calling them to exalt in their circumstances because these are the circumstances that lead to trust in God. You see, the, the, the trials and the troubles and the afflictions that we experience is not so much to see, it's not so much for God to see what's inside of us, but for God to show us how faithful he is, how good he is how ultimately satisfying he is and how better he is than anything this world has to offer. And to the rich, to those who have this temptation to say, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll work hard. Uh, I'll, I'll use my resources, my time, my connections. I'm an expert at Googling or finding the right YouTube video, how-to tutorial to navigate life. To those who it seems like it just might be easier to, to uh, utilize and leverage your resources and your riches. He says, be careful. Because what will happen when you experience troubles is that they will remind you that money can't solve your problems. That your resources can't solve your problems. And all that stuff that you fill your life with can't cover up your hurts. He says the temptation is is to rely on resources or to rely on anything or anyone else. And he says, rely and trust on God, the good shepherd, the gentle physician, the prince of peace. Rely on God. And and what's so incredible about this is, is that the good news of Jesus reminds us that there's just a way better, that there's a better way to live. Uh, And and it's living with complete reliance and trust in Jesus. Uh, So so that come what may, uh, our trust and our faith is not dictated on on what this world is giving or taking away, but it's founded upon Christ. And that we're rooted in him. And like the tree that is planted by the water, rooted in the source, will experience life and growth. So, so what, what does this mean for us? We, we covered a lot of uh, scripture, a bit of context. What, what do we do with it? What does it mean for the everyday stuff of life? What does this mean for you and me? One takeaway is this. The gospel creates a generous people. The gospel creates a generous people. And if we're honest with ourselves, money influences our faith more than Jesus does. Resources influence our faith more than Jesus does. 
taking risk are always calculated based upon our own efforts or talents or the resource we have access to instead of trusting on the greatness and boldness and courage of Jesus. Uh, the call to obedience is always dependent on where we find ourselves that day. I'm not really in a good place, so I'm not going to share faith today. Or uh, I'm just really not feeling it, so uh, I'm just not going to go be a part of community. And we let a wide range of emotions, resources, experience lead us and navigate us instead of letting Jesus be in control of our lives. And and what's so incredible about the gospel, this good news of Jesus, is that the gospel doesn't just uh, save us and then, you know, we're, we're now our name is written in heaven, but the gospel sustains us and directs every area of our life. And so what this means is that the gospel frees us from ourselves, that the gospel has the ability to remove the bondage that we find ourselves in when we want to lead and direct our lives or we want our faith to be influenced by our circumstances, the gospel frees us from ourselves and moves us to placing trust and faith in Jesus. Because now this burden of sin that kept us looking inward has been removed so that we can look outward and experience the provision and the richness and the grace and the faith that's been made available to us in Christ. And, and the gospel has this supernatural power to free us from ourselves so that we can go from looking inward to looking to Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we see someone who is far better than this world has to offer, who is way more resourceful than the biggest bank account, who is far more steadfast and trusting and enduring than your most faithful friend. We see the God of the universe who breathed life into you, created you, molded you, authoring your life, and he's present with you. The gospel frees us from ourselves so that we can be freed to love him who first loved us. Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, he humbled himself. Jesus became the lowly, the afflicted. Jesus became the destitute. Jesus uh, emptied himself of his power that he had. So those who are powerless, every single person in this room can be made alive in him. He humbled himself, says Paul, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That Jesus poured out his whole life, his power and his riches, and he gave himself to death, the ultimate oppressor, the ultimate agent of affliction and suffering, so that you and I, who are all on a, on, on a trajectory to experience death, can be redirected to find life in him. And this death of Jesus makes, it, makes a way for our identity to be found in Christ alone, makes a way for our trust and our reliance to be in Christ and not what this world has to offer, not what, by what we think we need, uh, by what we have or don't have, but to be founded upon Christ alone. So what this means is that when you feel insignificant in the eyes of the world, when you feel powerless in the eyes of the world, when you feel afflicted and destitute, when you feel empty and hurt, James says, rejoice. Rejoice because your relationship with the world 
because your relationship with the world is not the highest position in the universe. Rather, your relationship with Jesus is the highest position you can have in the entire universe. James says rejoice because you've been exalted to a place that is far above your suffering, that is far above your pain, that is far above your afflictions, that is far above the pain and hurts that you're experiencing, that you've been exalted to a place that is far above uh, the death and the feeling of insignificance. And this exalted place with Jesus looks down over all the circumstances and the death and the sinfulness and the evil of the world. And Jesus looks next to you and says, we've conquered all of that. I've died for all of that. So that you don't have to find significance in what this world has to offer. So that you don't have to place your your hope uh, and and your life in, in, in what you have or you don't have. But it's found in me and me alone. So if you, if you feel well off and secure and you have great status in the eyes of the world, G, James reminds you that only lasting security comes through relationship with Jesus. He says all of that will fall, all of that will wither, all of that will fade away. Paul goes on to say, as for the rich in this present age, remember, don't just think about money. Think about uh, resources. Think about uh, access. Think about your ability to become the Lord of your own life. Think about how easy that is. He says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. If you want to show the world that you're wealthy, if you want to show the world that that you're well off, the gospel makes you a generous people so that you can partner with the Spirit of God and do good works alongside Jesus. And to express your generosity, to express your riches and your ability to love and your ability to care and your ability to express faith and trust in Jesus as you come alongside the most broken parts of life and see them made alive in Christ Jesus. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Friend, true life, eternal life is the life of Jesus. And Jesus has made this life available for you when we come and put our faith and rely on him. So my question for you as we come to the table and worship God in communion is this. Does that which you love the most have the ability to fade away? Does that which you love the most have the ability to fade away, to perish, to fall? And if it does, you too will fade away with it. And if that which we trust the most does not fade away, if that which we love most does not fade away, the unfading eternal kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, who has the inability, cannot fade away, cannot perish, cannot wither, cannot fall. If that's what you love most, you will be preserved and you will not fade away with Christ because Christ is unable to wither, to fall, and to perish. Where is your trust this morning? Where is your allegiance? Where is your love?
Where is your faith at work? Is it at trying to preserve yourself and be the God of your life? Or is it in moving towards more and more confidence and obedience to Jesus? Let's pray before we worship in communion. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the kindness that you give us in your word. Um, as many have said, James is, can be that, that brethren, that friend that's just in your face um, and just reveals to you, uh, calls, calls out the sin, calls out the mess. And, and, and Lord, I'm reminded that whenever you do that, it's always out of love. And it's your desire to free us from ourselves so that we can fall more in love with you. So Lord, I worship you for the kindness and oftentimes the bluntness of your word. Because in doing so, you make it very clear for us where you want our hearts to be and how you want us to live so that we can enjoy you, so that we can love you. So Holy Spirit, as, as, as we take this moment to just reflect, I pray that you would reveal to us an area of our life where we're not fully relying on you, where we're not fully trusting on you, and we're trusting in ourselves. Holy Spirit, I pray that in this moment that you would come and fill us afresh and embolden us and empower us to move away from faith and allegiance and trust in something or someone else to more faith and more trust in Jesus. And I pray that you would bring this word to remembrance. I pray that you would have this on the forefront of our mind that following you, living for you is a much better way to live. And that we can trust you because you are trustworthy. You have always been faithful and always been good. So we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.